funny thing, church. Like two minutes ago, I was wiping my daughter's bottom in the men's toilets. And now look at me. <laughs> King of all I survey. I did wash my hands. You'll be pleased to know. Um, also kind of nursing a slight chest infection, so bear with me. Um, We're doing a a short series over the next couple of months on stories in Mark. We started last week, Shane um, started talking about Jesus partying with the tax collectors. Um, And this morning I'm going to kind of amp it up by giving you two stories in one. Yeah, so we're going to look at um, a Markan sandwich. So there's actually about seven or eight of these in the book of Mark where he kind of inserts a story in the middle of another story. So it's just something that he really likes to do. And this is one of my favourite examples of, of the Markan sandwich um, where we have... So the story of Jairus' daughter, just to continue the analogy, that the two pieces of bread... And um, the bleeding woman is the filling. Um, I was going to start with a little, a long spiel that kind of relates to what Shane was saying before um, about where we are as a community, but I'll I'll cut it down since he's already done a long spiel. But um, the place that we're at at the moment is, um, and we have talked about this already, but it's it's, um, a transition time for us and any experience of transition is a threat and an opportunity. Um, so there's, there's a, a threat um, that the, the staff that we have and the other busy volunteers do kind of keep operating as magic elves and try to um, keep the show rolling on and burn themselves out in the process. Um, and I was very much in touch with that danger this week as I kind of looked at the prospect of preparing for this morning and felt a kind of a massive wave of fatigue wash over me. Um, And also just that realisation of the anxiety that's provoked by having to to talk to, to, you know, any community, but the anxiety that I feel in the anticipation of speaking here Um, and realising that a lot of that is what I bring to, to the experience of just... Um, pressure that I put on myself to to satisfy you, to give you something that um, that meets your expectations, uh, treating you like an audience that I have to please rather than my family who I'm doing something with. Um, so, so there, all of those things can you know coalesce into quite a heavy sense as you anticipate preparing for for um, for a Sunday, um, but. It's also an amazing opportunity, I think, for us to um, to be honest about all of that, to do what I just did, you know, just to, to be upfront about the fact that this is a challenging time, um, that we do have fewer people in some ways trying to do more because we're in a transition process and we're trying to work out what next. Um, and so it's, it's just really crucial, I think, for, for us as people who are on staff or people that are kind of um, really involved volunteers, just to be honest about the load that we have and um, to invite, I guess, greater participation from other people. Um, 
but also to um, just change the way we do things. And that's, that's one thing that I want to do this morning is um, I've just prepared a structure which kind of plays, plays to my passions rather than to the things that daunt me. So I've done a lot of reading and I've created a bit of a structure for us, um, but I haven't um, written out a kind of seamless and perfectly integrated script this morning because that stuff really tires me. Um, but the space that it creates, not nailing everything down, is a wonderful opportunity for you guys to, to step into that and to be part of making this morning something meaningful. Um, so if we have awkward silences or we have moments where I kind of flee the room and then come back again or whatever, then that's, that's why. I, I listened to this great podcast um, this week about um, direct mindfulness. I'll put the link up on the the Facebook page, because I think all of us should listen to it in the next few months. Um, but the, the woman, she's a Harvard professor of psychology. I can't remember her name to my shame, but that fits with the theme because the women in this story are not named. Um, she talked about play, work-life balance, and the, the, the idea of a work-life balance being really dangerous because it created these two very distinct categories of work and life, or work and play. And her point being that if you, um, if you really wanted to be effective in your workplace, if you really wanted to be productive and creative, you needed to introduce the logic of play as much as possible to the workspace. Um, and she, she gave lots of examples of the way, simply by changing the way things were named, people's experience of situations could be radically transformed. My favourite example was um, these chambermaids in a New York hotel who were all um, struggling with, with weight issues and they kind of, I don't know how she got involved in this as a Harvard psychology professor, but she was kind of brought in to consult with them. And all that she did, because these women, women were incredibly active all day, and all that she did was to say to them, don't think of what you do as labour, think of it as exercise. Simply substitute one term for another, see what happens. And they lost weight simply by transferring one word for another. Um, so we're going <laughs> to we're going to transfer work to play. So we're going to play this morning. I invite you to play with me this morning. Um, and of course, remembering that that play is always much more serious than work, anyway. Um, so to begin with, we're going to do what we do in kids' church. Um, so in kids' church these days, um, when we look at stories, we're trying to avoid the danger of closing down stories, shutting them down to like a single message or a single kind of moral lesson t- to take away. And we're trying to open up stories. And the way we're doing that is to tell the story and to ask um, I wonder questions. Rather than kind of closed questions or shutting down questions, I wonder questions, opening up these stories to our imagination, opening up these stories to, um, to our curiosity, and um, connecting both with our senses to what's happening in the story, but also our imaginations as we think about the experience of the characters in the story. Um, a lot of this connects with the Midrash tradition within Jewish um, study of scripture. So a midrash is a story that 
is created to fill in a gap in Scripture. Yeah, so if, if there's a, a character in a story that is not really examined very closely in Scripture, then the Jewish rabbis will come up with an elaborate story about that person, an act of imagination to open up the story, to engage with it imaginatively. So it's almost the opposite of trying to draw out a single moral lesson. It's, kind of, it's actually expanding the story through, through imagination. So that's what we're going to try and do. Um, and with that in mind, we're not going to read the story to begin with. I'm just going to tell it to you. Um, so the idea, as I, as I tell, tell you the story, just try to engage with your senses and your imagination with this story and think about what the experience might be like for the characters involved uh, and try to construct some I wonder questions about this story. You know, I wonder why this person did this. I wonder why um, they didn't do some, make some other choice. So just imaginatively engage with the story. Does that make sense? Yes? Remember we're playing, so you can say things. Okay, so here's the story. Um, so Jesus has just been on the other side of the lake. In this part of Mark, he keeps going back and forth across the lake. Why? I don't know. But uh, the story begins with him coming from the Gentile side of the lake back to the Jewish side of the lake. And as soon as he arrives, um, this guy Jairus, who is one of the leaders of the synagogue, so a guy of great status, comes up to him, throws himself in the dust at Jesus' feet and begs him to come with him to his house because his little daughter is sick and he wants Jesus to lay his hands on his daughter so his daughter will be well. And Jesus says that he will go with Jairus and so he and his followers follow Jairus and his servants on the way to Jairus's house. There's a crowd which is pressing in on them on all sides as they move through the town towards Jairus' house. So also in the crowd is a woman who for the previous 12 years has been suffering from, from bleeding and she has spent everything that she has on doctors to try to fix this problem but the only thing that has been achieved is that her condition has got worse and she's been left with nothing. She has, she has nothing left. And she tells herself, if I can just touch this man's clothes, if I can just touch Jesus' clothes, then I will be healed. And so she presses through this crowd that is all pressing together and pressing on Jesus and gets just close enough to reach out and touch the hem of Jesus' cloak. And instantly, she feels the bleeding stop. She feels a sense of wellness inside of her. Jesus feels this healing power go out of him and so instantly stops and turns and says, who touched my clothes? Such a great question. Who touched my clothes? 
um, his disciples, being his disciples, kind of laugh and say, there's like a hundred people pressing in on you from all sides, Jesus. What a ridiculous question. But Jesus, being Jesus, ignores them and keeps just looking around the crowd. And the woman starts to tremble with, with fear at, at what? We, we're not told, at exposure, at a sense of, uh, of being seen. But she steps forward and um, she tells Jesus the truth. It's interesting, this speaking the, the truth, there's only two people in the whole of Mark that are given this word, the truth. Jesus speaks the truth and this woman speaks the truth. They're the only two people in the entire book that speak the truth. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go, you are healed. And so she thanks him and turns and walks through and away from the crowd. So at that moment, some servants from Jairus' home arrive and they say to Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter has died. But Jesus overhears this and says to Jairus, do not be afraid, just believe. And he leaves all of his disciples except for Peter, James and John and he goes with them and Jairus and the servants to Jairus's house where there is an enormous commotion, there's wailing and um, chaos of grief. And Jesus says to the, the crowd of mourners outside the house, why the commotion? What are you wailing and crying about? This girl is not dead, she's just asleep. Uh, and again, he's met with laughter and derision and the mourners laugh in his face. What, who is this idiot that's just showed up and knows nothing about this and has said this thing, which is clearly not true? And Jesus says to all of them, stay out here. And he takes Peter and James and John and Jairus and his wife into the house, just them. And he walks up to the daughter's bed and he says in Aramaic, Talitha kum, daughter, maid, arise. And he takes her hand and pulls her up and she sits up, very much alive. And everyone in the room is overwhelmed with astonishment, can't believe their eyes. Um, and perhaps to snap them out of it, he says... Get her something to eat. It's always food. It's a very Jewish tradition, I guess. <laughs> Noodle soup, something like that. Get her something to eat. Yeah. And so they do. Here endeth the lesson. So, oh, I forgot to get the clickety thing. Have you got the clickety thing, Shane? For the thing? Yeah. Or we could just, you could just do it, Jess, the next slide. So these are three questions that I came up with, just to give you some examples. 
Three I wonder questions in response to this story. I guess the other point to make about these stories is that um, most of them are enough in themselves. They're not necessarily stories that need to be answered at all. Um, they're just stories to, um, to articulate our sense of wonder, to articulate the things that, um, the spaces that we want to open up within the story. Um, and there may be some of them that need a tentative answer or that deserve a tentative answer, but um, with these questions, we're not necessarily looking to answer your I wonder questions, but just to hear them. Yeah, so these are three of mine that it occurred to me to wonder. Um, did anyone else have any I wonder questions as they listened? I wonder what the woman had heard about Jesus and why it was that she thought that touching his robes would heal her because even looking at it the way Jesus healed everyone, he did it differently every time. Like, where was the thought coming from that, oh, I can touch his robes and I'll be healed? Yeah, it's such a great question. I had the same question. Where did she get that faith from? What's it based on? Yeah. I wonder why Mark does the sandwich thing. Like... Is not one great healing story enough? Yeah. I always wondered if Jairus is angry that Jesus stopped and wasted a bit of time talking to someone else and his daughter died in the meantime. Yeah. Um, I wonder why Jesus said she's just sleeping. You'd guess somebody's taken a pulse or has decided she has died. So is he like, ha ha, you were wrong? Or, you know, why, why not claim it as a miracle, uh, healing? Yeah, good question. Yeah, what's the point of even saying that at all? Yeah. I wonder why the women aren't named again. I wonder about um, how much Jairus loved his daughter. Not well, not how much he loved her, but um, I have an impression as if back in that time, women weren't worth as much. So, just interested to hear how much he valued her and would go to a, a healer he'd heard of to try and save her. So, one thing I will say at this point is um, that in the what's interesting in the, the well, two things um, I didn't mention that the woman had been bleeding for 12 years and Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. So there's that interesting connection there. But in the Greek, I don't, I don't really read the Greek, but I did a little bit of, you know, interpreting, kind of looking at the text, kind of parallel text stuff. In the Greek, the, the term that Jairus uses for daughter is the diminutive term for daughter. So it's, it, in, in the translation, it says, little, my little daughter, because in the Greek, it's not just the word daughter, it's like, I mean, Spanish and French and German, they have diminutive endings like ito and all of this. So it's that in Greek. 
this little diminutive ending at the end, my little daughter, even though she is 12, like she's almost a woman. It's a, it's a fascinating detail for me. And it, I don't know exactly what it suggests about the relationship between Jairus and his, and, and his daughter, but it suggests something, yeah. I wonder why the focus is on physical healing and not spiritual healing. Yeah. Good question. I wonder what happened to the woman after she was healed, whether it was emotional healing as well. I actually came across, in my kind of obsessive internet research, I came across a book that someone had written about a midrash, so a novel about Jairus's daughter, um, about her life before and after. I couldn't find anyone that had done the same for the bleeding woman. But yeah, it'd be an amazing exercise. And it's actually something that I thought I would give you for homework this week if you're interested, even to do it as an imaginative, contemplative exercise, just to, to create your own midrash for the bleeding woman and for Jairus's daughter to just imaginatively engage with what it was when we know some details about the woman's backstory about 12 years of of bleeding and seeing doctors and all of the money but to 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 think about yeah what what came next for both of those women and what was the nature of their healing I mean that's part of my um I didn't put it up there but just um why yeah why Jesus needed to know why why Jesus called out the woman why couldn't he just let her go, um, was there something incomplete about the healing without the words um, that he, without telling her? Is there some sense in which without those words to, um, to kind of complete the sense of healing, to confirm for her what you're feeling, this is what it means and therefore you can hold on to that going forward? Whether, yeah, whether there was something really necessary about those words, yeah. I'm, I'm saying it's not just touching him. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personal thing. Everyone is important. It's, uh, it, it's specifically her. The need to acknowledge her particularity and to, to look into her eyes, that kind of thing, yeah. Um, Justin Duckworth, who is like on this tear thing next weekend, or two weekends time, at Surrender, he talked about this story and said he just wondered whether Jesus had done it because of her bleeding and everything, she was an outcast. She shouldn't have even been in the crowd. She shouldn't have been around men or anything because of her situation. And that he spent time with her and told her she was healed and acknowledged her in front of everybody so that she could have a standing again and be acknowledged as somebody who was now part of community and now connected again. And I thought that was a powerful little thought that he shared. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that, again, any answer to these questions has to be tentative because we don't want to shut down the story. But it, perhaps the reason why Mark... I mean, we could choose to think that, that these two stories did happen in the way that they happened. Uh, but given the whole Mark and Sandwich thing, that it happens many times... What's more likely is that Mark chooses to put one story inside of the other one. And so the inevitable question is, why? 
And I do think that that, that issue of, of status, is a, it must be part of it. The fact that you have a synagogue, a named synagogue ruler who is made to wait while an unnamed, unclean woman is spoken to, not just healed, but then called out and spoken to by Jesus. There's enormous power in that. Um, and you don't want to make too much of this because I don't think my understanding is from the text, Mark isn't really foregrounding the uncleanness issue, but an, a bleeding woman and a dead body, they're both unclean. Um, and so in touching both women, Jesus is transgressing purity laws. Um, so it's quite yeah, powerful in both senses. Um, I guess on some levels when you're talking about um, connecting with the senses, I was trying to imagine being that woman and it's interesting because we tend to think in this day and age we're all very open about things but we still don't tend to talk about gynecological problems so he's he's not only highlighted someone who's um you know an outcast in some ways but we, we still don't talk about these things so this whole story has become a hugely public story about something that's often very private and I was just thinking about the nature of healing and how um we often focus on you know incredible um miracles that Jesus can produce and how he's this sort of superhuman person on some levels but it took those two people for for this woman to be healed it took that woman to also be ready to be healed and to have that kind of faith um, which I think is quite incredible even now yeah it's astonishing courage given the time given the culture given the nature of her condition to yeah to do what she did it's just quite breathtaking I wonder first whether it was faith or desperation, um, whether it was a confidence that something was happening, or whether it was a la- you know the last resort of a desperate person, and whether that changes anything. And secondly, I also just wonder like if you know throughout the Gospels, the Jesus is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. Is, of what does this what does this story tell us about the kingdom? Like how does it shape our view of what God's doing in the world? Yeah. Anyone else? I just wonder at the, um, the, he was a priest and yet he lacked faith where that woman was just a nobody and she had such faith that just to touch his clothes was good enough but that man was like, no, you've got to come to my place, you've got to see my kid, you've got to, you know... Where and then like previous the centurion, he just said, "Look, just say the word," and he was supposed to be a priest, and yet he had to see physically the healing. Where the woman, she just knew emotionally deep down, "Oh, if I just touch him," so you know, it's like. And a lot of the women were leaders of that faith, even Mary and all that. You know, the tomb. Just yeah, maybe we should be more emotional like the women. Thank you. What I was going to do um, was to, to kind of give you out the text now and give you a chance to, to look at it at your tables. But um, we've kind of, 
and I, I guess I was the point of that was to sort of the, the first phase to be wonder, I wonder questions and kind of just opening it up, and the second phase I guess to look at it as a written thing and to to compare in more detail uh, the two stories and how they are the same and how they are different. But we've kind of um, we've kind of covered it, and I really don't want us to go longer than we need to. So I'm, I might not do that, but but I do have. Um, a bunch of copies of the text up here. So if, when we finish, if you wanted to come and, and take one and look at the story in more detail, obviously you can do that at home as well. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for all of that. Um, so just, I guess, I- instead to finish, um, to, I just wanted to point out a couple of other things and then um, finish with a story of my own because I don't want to shut down what we've just said by kind of saying this is what it all means. So I just want to finish with a story. Um, But I cut just a couple of other observations. Um, I think the 12 years thing is interesting, the way that she's she's been bleeding for 12 years and Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. Um, And that sense of of one woman bleeding for 12 years and another woman having lived up almost up to the point where she begins bleeding. Um, yeah, the, the kind of the theme of blood and that, that sense of the lives of women that, that comes into this story, um, even though the only person named is Jairus. I think it's, it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to, to see, um, again, it, it's, it's what we looked at in Colossians, the, the way the writers in the New Testament are often pushing gender stuff as far as they are perhaps able to in their context, but that there are indications there, there are clues there for us of how much further we can take um, these issues. Um, I guess that theme of desperation and faith, touch and healing, how those things are linked, Um, but also the fact that Jesus is, is kind of derided and laughed at in both stories. Um, and that there's just something fascinating there, I guess, about how healing works and where desperation, faith and touch have a role in healing, but where kind of derision of healing, perhaps from outside of us or from within us, can often um, challenge it at exactly at the moment that it is happening. Um, and so we need, I guess, to be aware of those um, voices within us. And I don't think that's doubt. I think doubt is, doubt in the process of healing and doubt about healing is inevitable. Uh, I think that's very different from a derision um, laughing at um, the possibility of healing and the possibility, laughing at exactly what is happening um, in front of us. Um, I love the fact that we, we hear perhaps the exact words that Jesus said in this story, Talitha Kum, that he, we hear this little bit of Aramaic um, and that beautiful window into the actual moment, um, at the actual words that Jesus said and this, yeah, this opportunity to go deep into um, the actual circumstances but also to recognise, uh, as we talked about again with the Colossians series, how alien also is how far from us this story is, another language, another part of the world, another culture, 
Um, so it's a beautiful doubleness in the fact that we hear Jesus' words quoted. So as I said, I, don't, I really just want to leave most of those stories and most of those observations just in the air. Um, and I, all I really want to do to, to finish with is um, to respond to one of the threads. And there are many threads, there are many kind of ideas in this story. But respond to one of the threads, and that is, I guess, the, the thread of touch and physicality and healing in this. Um, the story is full, full of touch and full of physicality. Jairus falling to, into the dust at Jesus' feet, um, the sweaty crowd pressing in on Jesus, uh, the bleeding woman pr- pushing through the crowd to get to Jesus, touching Jesus, and then falling at his, again falling at his feet in the dust. Um, I found um, various uh, images um, of the story. I particularly like the chickens in this one. Um, But yeah, images that I guess touch on uh, the physicality of the story and the gaze you know, Jesus' gaze, as Alistair was saying, it's not just about this kind of act of healing, but it's about connection. Um, and it's amazing with the image, the way an image can really shape our perception of a story, because if you contrast this image and the kind of physicality of the woman and the physicality of Jesus with that one, the way we see her gaze, you know, that she is the focus of the, of the picture rather than Jesus. And then with this one, which is a Rembrandt sketch and that sense of, of not just touch, but Jesus kind of taking the weight of the woman as he lifts her to her feet. Such a beautiful picture. Yeah. And the same with, the, with Jairus' daughter. Just the thing that undoes me with this particular, it's not, I don't think it's a particularly great picture, but what undoes me about this picture is her hand, um, that, 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 the hand of a child in death, kind of the unnatural angle of a child's hand in death and the grief. Uh, and the, the last one that I found that I, that I really connected with was, was this one. Oh, sorry. Susie, my partner, sent me a link um, this week or last week about some research about hugs. I don't know if anyone else saw that, but that a 20-second hug is incredibly healing. You you saw saw that as well. Um, And I I guess it relates to the the I wonder question over there about um, physical healing versus spiritual healing. Um, And I guess one, I think one of the great dangers that has plagued churches has been the expectation of healing taking on a particular form that we've decided it must 
take. And then if it doesn't take that form, that's an indication of God's failure or our failure. Um, and I think that the, the message of this story is that we don't necessarily know what healing will look like. What we do know is that um, that healing comes from, from faith and touch and connection. It doesn't come from fear and it doesn't come from guilt and it doesn't come from guilting other people into praying for healing or whatever it might be. Um, but that your yeah, healing can take surprising forms. Um, and I feel like I may have told this story before here, but many years ago when my first marriage ended, um, I went, I drove north from Sydney up to Coffs Harbour to visit a friend of mine. Um, and uh, I was probably at my worst point in the process of pain and grief um, at a point where it felt, it really did feel like I had a kind of a stone of pain in my gut permanently. Um, I have these images of being sitting in the back of their car, driving back from lunch, and just having that, that experience of pain. We just think, okay, this is unendurable. Um, and the first night that I was, was there, um, his partner went to bed, we talked for a little while, and then... He just held me um, for not 20 seconds, it was probably closer to 20 or 30 minutes, um, and I sobbed, and um, it was the most astonishing, astonishing experience of, of healing, emotional healing that I've had uh, at, at the end of the uh, half-hour hug. He had a kind of a, a pool of snot and saliva on the back of his shirt that was about the diameter of a basketball. It was quite something but um <laughs> he didn't flinch <laughs> uh, and um yeah it just it struck me that um so often when it comes to healing where our focus is on I guess like with western medicine our focus is on some kind of um disembodied or compartmentalized sense of the body changing um whereas with Jesus in this story, um, healing is always healing always needs to address the whole self um, and the parts of ourselves that need to be healed are often the parts that we're not even aware need to be healed. Um, and I haven't set people up to do this, but um, often at the end of our, our meetings, we have prayer over in in that corner. Um, so if anyone would like to pray for someone or to be prayed for um, after we finish, it would be great if you could go over to the corner. Um, and even if that's not words, but touch. Um, so we're going to finish with, um, with communion this morning. Um, and communion this morning is just going to be um, tea and water. And I think, yeah, the, the crackers... The crackers of Christ have just been put on the table over there. So um, just before we have communion, let's have a, a minute or two for you to go and just get a glass of water or another cup of tea or something like that and grab a cracker or two to take back to your table and then we'll have communion together in a minute. So I'll give you a minute to do that.
So just as people are making their way back to their seats, um, just before we have communion, um, just a reminder that there are copies of the passage up here if you want to come and read it and write your midrash for Jairus' daughter on the back. Um, and the other thing is just a reminder that um, my, intention, <laughs> my intention in telling the story at the end and in uh, what we're, we're going to do with communion is not to try to shut down this story to this one idea. Um, so I hope that the threads and the I wonder stories that came out of this passage for you, you can carry them, uh, whatever they were, whatever you connected with, you can carry that forward this week and think more about it. Um, Um, but what, what I'd love us to do as we have communion, um, as we eat and drink Jesus' body, is, is to reflect on the fact that in eating and drinking, we are being touched by Jesus and we are being embraced by him. Um, so as you eat and drink this morning, um, my prayer, and this is our benediction, so have communion and then just chat. Um, my prayer is that God might use, um, that you might feel God's healing touch this morning in, in this act of communion and that God might use you to bring healing touch into the lives of others. So eat and drink together and then talk more. Amen. Amen.